And so really it's a, a book about how we can better understand the planet and better understand ourselves uh, through many of the kind of new and exciting data sets that are being uh, collected. And we use this word invisible because often uh, data and maps and graphics enable us to see things that we can't easily see. Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hi everybody, welcome to Coffee and Geography and I am joined by uh, someone I've had the absolute privilege to um, collaborate with and we're going to talk a little bit about that, well mostly this episode. Um, I want to welcome uh, James Cheshire, Professor James Cheshire to the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. So um, James, would you like to uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your your role and what you do? Yeah, so I'm a uh, Professor of Geographic Information and Cartography uh, in the Geography Department at UCL. And so um, I guess I spend my life doing three different things. I obviously teach uh, students, undergraduates and and master's students, and I teach courses in cartography and data visualization as well as statistics and data analysis. Another part of my job is research, so um, kind of funded research projects, and I'm particularly interested in new types of data and what they can tell us about um, the future of our high streets and consumer data sets and consumer behaviours. And then um, the last part is uh, I kind of am responsible for uh, a thing called the Social Data Institute, which um, is all about kind of doing more social data science amongst undergraduates and postgraduates and then my colleagues and then you know across all those things i i then try and fit in um writing co-authoring uh books of maps and graphics yeah wonderful so you've mentioned a few bits there so what we'll do everybody we'll put some uh, some uh, links in the in the description for you so you can uh, have a good explore of all those things because what we're here to talk about um is mostly that latter bit because that's how we came to meet is that i got an email from uh, the Geographic Association saying that we have this uh, this professor who who offers these wonderful books uh, and the latest one that that was written um, with yourself and and all the graphics illustrations by Oliver Roberti is called Atlas of the Invisible. So uh, we'll co- we'll come to that in a second. But before we do, it's always tradition on this podcast to tell us a little bit about what you what you've got in that mug of yours that you're sipping from. So what have you what brew have you got with you? So so I'm a I'm a coffee drinker. I don't I don't like tea in a sort of you know traditional builder's tea sense i'm not a fan of that but um i might occasionally uh, have the odd herbal tea but i'm a coffee drinker through and through and of course um i live in northeast london and i probably live within a mile of about five coffee roasters so um i have a good selection of uh artisanal uh coffees that i either get posted to me every couple of weeks or i sort of go out and search of so i'm a real you know I'm the caricature of a kind of northeast London hipster, potentially. I like I'm a, I'm a real coffee snob. Oh, well, hipster. Well, actually, we'll come back to that like later on because um, because of the word 
uh, that our previous guest gave with for we are all geographers. What's what's your do you have a do you have a favorite brand? I mean, we we name drop brands not not for promotion, but we do it for for our guests and their students to to challenge them on sustainability, do a bit of inquiry. So, what's what's your go to usually? Oh, that's a really good question. So, um, there's quite a lot that one of the one of the ones that's really taken off uh, around here lately is called Perky Blenders. Um, and they've been uh, growing and then we've got uh, there's Wood Street Roasters and then there's um, Minor Figures, which some people may have seen. Uh, they roast up the road. So they're all um, small batch kind of uh, roasters and a lot of them are organic uh, or, you know, definitely kind of fair trade organic. And so that's something that um, is quite important, actually, the sustainability aspect. And it's been very interesting in recent last couple of years. I mean, the, the price of coffee has uh, really gone up um, due to sort of various climatic yeah. factors and things. And so that's very noticeable. So, you know, these things aren't, bags of coffee aren't as cheap as they used to be, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But um, as I say, if you're someone like me that drinks a lot of it, it does uh, soon adds it up. It adds up, yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, sustainability, a very, very good segue into then... Um, Atlas of the Invisible, um, which is an absolute beautiful, beautiful publication. And uh, and I have no qualms on this um, podcast at all to give it a really good plug because that is what's going to be the meat of the conversation. So you, yourself and I recorded um, some video chats regards to um, that book and what it was all about and what it means and the messages and everything like that. So um, to introduce, so we're going to play some, some of this um um, video through audio because it's very don't worry it's podcast friendly everybody <laughs> um so you can enjoy it while you're commuting or everything like that so um james would you like to introduce us to uh, what atlas of the visible is and we will then get them folks to listen uh, yeah thanks kit and um it was great you know our conversations i think um in november were uh kind of a really nice way to get me thinking a bit more about the book and you know the impact it can have and so on um and so really it's a, a book about how we can better understand the planet and better understand ourselves uh, through many of the kind of new and exciting data sets that are being uh, collected and we use this word invisible because often uh, data and maps and graphics enable us to see things that we can't easily see. So it may be that we can take a historic data set. So we've got historic whaling, for example. You know, that's something we can't see today, um, but we can digitize um, whaling ship logs and it can reveal kind of the patterns that, that existed during that time. We can think about things that might happen in the future. So climate change projections. And um, again, that's not visible today, but the maps and graphics may show us a future that uh, uh, we might be living through. And similarly, um, you know, there's lots of contemporary issues that are hard to imagine or, or you know, if you just look out the window and, and think, of, you know, and see them in, in, in one big picture, but we can, again, use a map to really zoom out of something or zoom into something and uh, reveal patterns that are otherwise um, hard to see. So that's really what we try and do in the book. And um, hopefully... You know, we've got some kind of interesting and exciting examples of, of that, um, that, you know, I'm a geographer and, and, and I pick topics that were of interest uh, to me and hopefully they'll be interested to, to other geographers out there as well. That's, yeah, I, I, I fully, yeah, 
Um, I can't say no more than that, really. So, everybody, um, here you go. Here's uh, James and I having a conversation back in November with regards to various things about Atlas the Invisible, um, a little bit of context to it all, and its contents. So do enjoy. When you made me aware of this book that you were writing, I had to jump at the chance and, and, and get the chance to work with you. And it is so timely because maps, of course, are ubiquitous through geography education at all phases. Um, but at secondary education in particular, you know, it's usually OS maps or survey maps. And how do we integrate those kind of basic map skills? But of course, they tell so much more. There's a narrative behind them. The reason why you develop the map, the what story are they telling? How does the person looking at that map draw a narrative for themselves? And so, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to hearing about your thoughts about why you felt the need to go about this with this book and perhaps how you hope it will be applied in an educational setting. Yeah, thanks, Kit. So I think one of the most exciting things about um, this working on this project, in, but, but actually look, looking at sort of geography overall at the moment, is there's a tremendous amount of material available for mapping and map making. And um, there's a huge amount of potential for uh, using it in kind of new and exciting ways. And that's really what this book is about, but actually about my work in general, is it's about taking maps away from using them as a tool to find out where a river is or a mountain or something like that, and, and, and creating stories and narratives from, from data. And it's something that I think Atlas is a uniquely mm. placed place to do. Yeah, and, and Atlas skills is, is, is something that any geography educator listening will, will you know, that will ring a bell with them. And they're beautiful pieces of art, I feel, atlases, beautiful pieces of artwork. And um, so, uh, but maps are still seen as, as a skill in terms of, you know, what we can categorise what students need to learn as they're in that skill bracket, but they really should be in that bracket of, of narrative. They really should be in that bracket of uh, being a curriculum artefact, being a stimulus. And this is what I really, really enjoy about what you are doing with these visualisations. One particular map, which, which really, really kind of gives a sense of power towards me is something called bombshell reports. So can you tell me a little bit about how that speaks to you as a map of, of not power, but also it speaks as a map of showing power through time, perhaps, because, time, because maps are a static thing, it seems like, but actually they can be a temporal measure as well. Yeah, yeah. so uh, bombshell reports is something, I'll just turn to the page now, but the, 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 it, it started off as a, a story about um, the US bombing of, of Vietnam. So um, there's uh, this historic data set that actually spans uh, every uh, war since the First World War, which is these uh, shows historic sorties, they're called, but missions that US Air Force planes flew. And um, they used to be marked on paper maps. It used to be that you know mm. the, the pilots would come back and mark on the map where they'd been and what their target was. And then these data sets got digitized so actually they became a digital resource. And um, they were still um, classified uh, in the most part. Um, but actually in, in the year 2000, um, Bill Clinton uh, released the classified information for the Vietnam War. Um, and the reason he did this was because the US actually had a secret bombing campaign of Cambodia. Mm. Now, obviously the people in Cambodia were aware of it because they've been suffering the consequences since through unexploded bombs that have been killing and injuring people um, for the decades since the war. Um, but the kind of US population, it was considered a, 
a, a state secret that this bombing ever happened. And so the data got released in order to help people locate where the most intensive bombing happened and so that they could then go and search for the unexploded ordnance. Right. And um, it was a real surprise to me because I hadn't heard about this Cambodia bombing. So when I first opened the data set, I could see that there was all these, this bombing in Cambodia. And so the job became, how do we tell that story in such a way that people can relate the data points, the dots, to the missions and the things that, that were happening at the time? And so we had to do a huge amount of research to understand how the, the data was structured, even what the different missions were. It's, it's called Operation Menu. You know, they're sort mm. of named after meals. <clears throat> and so the power of the map... And actually, we, we actually make a bigger one here. We let fold it out so that we can mark on it where the different bombs fell, depending on these missions. So we had breakfast, dinner, dessert, you know, snack, supper were these missions along particular roads that the, the US Army were targeting. And so actually, we combined that story with another story, which is about um, a siege that happened to US troops within Vietnam, Battle of Khe Sanh, which is this celebrated, for want of a better word, celebrated mm. battle within within um, US military history where uh, this US base was under siege. And it turned out that, that around that base became the most heavily bombed part on the planet. And so we had a challenge. We had to come up with a way of telling a story uh, over a longer time period across a whole country and then people can turn the page and then we had to zoom right into a specific event and add narration and things like that uh, to help tell that story. And so there's a, a big kind of iceberg of work that went into this and, and, and the trick is using things like arrows and annotation to help pull out mm. what's happening. Yeah, and it's really, really interesting how you've gone about mapping this because as we said, this is, this is really a map, a temporal map, as well as a, a geolocation spatial map. So for example, you know, you've, it's really, it's, I, it's, I, I took a little bit of a, you know, naming, naming bombing campaigns after, after snacks, after meals, you know, that, that in itself, displaying that, almost the, the inhumanity of it. But of course, going on it completely now analytical in terms of a temporal scale, you know, they are temporal timestamps, aren't they? They're breakfast and then depending on you know, some people say dinner and supper, whatever way around, but then you've got the temples according to the according to those campaigns there. And then the way that you've done this in terms of your geolocation points, you've got Operation Menu, which you've done in yellow, which was, not, you know, the, the campaign in 1969 to 1970, then Operation Freedom Deal, you've got that in orange and you've got that in red. And of course, as you've just already mentioned, you've got that zoomed in function where you've got you know, you've done the same sort of thing where you've done it by month and yeah. gone really, so you've not just zoomed in, in spatially, you've zoomed in temporarily as well. So explain uh, to me why you decided it, to go about yeah, it. Yeah, well, that, and that was one of the big uh, kind of features of, uh, one of the big, um, not features, but one of the biggest kind of um, revelations um, was that we originally had our points coloured by time in a generic sense, you know, between January and March, you know, March to uh, May and, and, and so on. Um, but then Oliver, who um, designed the book as the co-author, he, he said, well, look, the, the trouble is your, your, the colours of your points are not lining up with these key moments in the campaign. So what you need to do is you've got to go back and you've got to recolour all of them 
to fit these distinctive moments in right. the history. And then as soon as you do that, the picture emerges. And so it's a good example of where thinking about um, how you can use colour, um, you know, goes beyond just saying, well, these are sort of, you know, equal time periods that we're going to use colour for the particular points is actually using the colour to help really tell that tell mm. that story. And that's one thing that I noticed actually is is that in, in classic mapping, I guess, you've got very stratified um, data, data categorization. So you would have, you know, it's almost frowned upon that it must be three months, three months, three months segments or something like that. But yeah, absolutely. You've got, it's purely to the narrative rather than to the temporal yeah, uh, space. Exactly and right. you can quite clearly see from, from, from the map, you know, how the campaign switched from the east and then really did focus over towards, you know, the west along, along the, uh, the river. So that's really, really powerful um, visualisation in that respect. And I'd like to focus a little bit more on, on power. I mentioned it at the top, you know, that, that these things can have huge amounts of power and they can show the inequality of power. Um, and I just go, one thing that comes to my mind and you actually uh, mentioned in your teaching when you, when, when you do your teaching is, for example, the 1884 Berlin Conference you know, how a single stroke of a pen, you know, with these these people, these colonial powers in Berlin, decide that this is where, um, you know, the countries of Nigeria and this is where Cameroon's going to be, completely dissecting, you know, the, the tribes in, in the Niger Delta area, for example. And that's just one element of how cartography and geography is used as a, as a tool of power. And and one thing that I've read quite substantially when I, when I do these kind of things is uh, Painter and Jeffrey, they've got their their political geography of 2009, their, their, um, their publication. And they opine that, you know, cartography and even geography, the concept of geography itself is a tool of colonialization. And therefore, us as geographers, from your sense and from my sense as a ex-geography teacher, we, are, we have to be responsible that we have this innate power because we are teachers and educators of geography. We promote geography. So I really do want to talk about this. So one thing about the book and, and, it, and its structure is, is something that, because we mentioned, you know, we mentioned atlases and things like that. Uh, and the title of your book, of course, is Atlas, is that you give a lot of historical context and preamble and examples at the start of each chapter to tell a narrative before you go into the maps. And, and one of those things that you look into quite extensively is the work of W.E.B. Du Bois. And you seem to, by the way that you write and the, the things, the stories that you tell from it, you seem to have a lot of affection for Du Bois and his work, you know, as, uh, as an African-American sociologist and, and the kind of the activism that, uh, that he did. So yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about why you have such affection for Du Bois and his work? I first kind of discovered um, Du Bois's work through the resurgence of an interest in um, the data visualizations that he had created, um, particularly for this 1900 um, Paris exposition. Um, and he and his students um, kind of by hand created these boards which were then displayed uh, in Paris as part of this um, big exposition that was happening. And um, th that work um, has all been kind of digitised and there's a, there's a brilliant book um, uh, that, that, that contains that information. Um, what I hadn't fully appreciated, and this is partly a symptom of the way that 
sort of sociological teaching has done and, and thinking about concepts in sociology and, and who came up, you know, who, who, who came up with them and, you know, the kind of general whitewashing of that history is, is that um, Du Bois was, was a real pioneer in the um, collection of data um, about the African-American population, particularly um, in, in the US um, around the time of, you know, the 1900s period. And um, the power of his work was, uh, for me and the connection for me was that he realised that um, data was being used against people like him because it was predominantly focused on the white population and it was catering for the white population's needs and it was being used to create you know the 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 the, the you know horrendous stereotypes and so on that you know in, in the Jim Crow South and things like that that that, 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 that were going on and so <clears throat> you know for Du Bois it, 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 he realized that uh, data offered uh, power um, in order to better represent the communities that were not properly represented. Um, he actually, you know, Al Alden Morris, who, who, who wrote a brilliant uh, biography of um, the, uh, Du Bois's scholarly work and, and sees him as a, a founder of, of sociological thinking, um, that, that's combined, that sort of empirical analysis is, is actually then combined with a very strong um, kind of political um, and politicization of, of his work because I think he realized and he says that you know um, data alone um, was not enough. In fact, he says here, you know, um, one could not be cool, calm, and uh, a cool, calm, and detached scientist um, while Negroes were lynched. And so he was he he'd witnessed and seen lynchings happening. Um, and he also says that you know um, he assumed that there would be demand for the scientific work that he was doing, but of course he was being, you know, isolated from, from his work because he was creating hard truths for the people in power. And, and you know, there's work that he did, what he, he described as his greatest sociological work um, was actually destroyed. I mean, he did this massive survey um, uh, uh, and it was destroyed because it, it was not, you know, considered sort of, you know, in line with the political thinking at the time. And so, um, you know, he he was a, he was operating. I mean, he had an incredibly long long life. Um, um, but in the early part of his his career, he was operating at a time when there were a lot of other developments. So they were trying to bring in an anti lynching bill in the nineteen. The best chance they had was around the nineteen twenties, and that was another brilliant example of um, what we would today consider sort of data journalism. So um, there's someone called Ida B. Wells, and there are others, particularly women's groups, working, uh, collecting uh, data on lynchings mm. and where African Americans had been, particularly had been killed by white mobs. And the argument against legislation was always, this is a local issue. You as a, your local legislators need to stop this. It's not a national issue. So we're going to keep it at arm's length. And the brilliance of their work was demonstrating that it was a national issue and that the maps that they created could be used to articulate that it's a national problem, it needs national legislation, 
And then they used those maps to try and kind of leverage politicians into voting for an anti-lynching bill. Um, sadly, it, it, they didn't get it through. And even to this, the most shocking thing is to this day, there isn't actually any bill in the US that explicitly outlaws lynching. So whilst ultimately they didn't achieve their objective, particularly in the, the 1920s, which is when they were pushing hardest for this, I think that the mapping and the data collection that was, that was created at the time um, is incredibly, in, you know, is both inspirational but also informative in the way that we should go about our work today. And it's, you know, not present enough on, you know, what we teach from school level, but also through to the kind of university level in map making, cartography and data visualization and things like that. It's not just that, you know, Du Bois created some nice infographics. It's actually the, the work that went into them to get the robust data collected, you know, the hard graft in order to create the data sets that could then be visualized. One of the long-term consequences of maps that, that again, we, we, we can, you know, overlook, but I think we should acknowledge um, uh, more is that, you know, maps created, you know, uh, less than, well, well, well within the last century, um, uh, uh, but potentially forgotten, are still having big impacts on the built environment or our perceptions of, um, you know, particular areas and things like that. And so the redlining example um, is uh, a perfect case in point where actually, yeah, you know, areas were effectively condemned as not being safe for investment, for homeowners loans, for all that kind of stuff. And so they weren't invested in. And so, you know, people thought, well, we'll just put a freeway down the middle of this one, or we won't plant the trees or put in the public parks that we need and all that kind of stuff. And so those are the built environment characteristics that are now impacting cities in a in a warming world because of course we need you know trees provide fantastic shade for people in 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 heat waves that you know the more concrete you have the more reflective heat you have the more heat that gets stored you know all, all those kinds of problems and so you know a, a map may be you know printed out in front of you but really its power can often be seen by the decisions that are taken from it and then the stuff that's been built as a result of you know that cart you know that cartographic mm. representation yeah and it's not just you know the impacts of heat um, when i was working out in san francisco um, i spoke to a group um, called shore up marin and, and that's the county of marin just to the north of of the city of san francisco and and they have, they are suffering these impacts in a similar way because of the, the red way that red line has taken place, the lack of investment, the lack of safeguarding in the built environment there. And so every time there is a king tide, that shoreline gets flooded. And the priority that the local authorities had was to build a freeway yeah. through that area, rather invest in a freeway so people could get to and from the city of San Francisco a lot easier through the north, through Marin, rather than investing in, in safeguarding those communities. So that's, and that, and that is, a story I heard from the local activists just a few years ago, yeah. and it's an issue, of course, it's getting worse because of rising sea levels and climate change. I mean, I think one one note of optimism is that we now have more data available to us that is more accessible to more people um, and the tools available to create, 
your own maps and your counter maps Indeed. and things like that. And I think using those uh, to leverage or to, to go against prevailing power is actually quite a, uh, a positive thing. And, and, and the nice thing actually about some of these, these data sets, of course, is that what they tell us is unequivocal in, in, in many respects. And so one of the examples we have in the book is a, a related to the Flint water crisis and how the city of Flint in Michigan changed its water supply to save money. It then was a different chemical composition in the water. So the lead pipes, the lead leached out into the water and poisoned the population effectively. Mm. And um, some uh, modelers at the University of Michigan actually came up with a way of pinpointing uh, quite effectively the houses that were most likely to have lead pipes feeding them. Um, and the city went undertook quite an effective campaign of replacing those lead pipes based on that model. But the problem was uh, some parts of the city, the more affluent ones, the ones with the newer buildings, less likely to have lead pipes, felt that they deserved their pipes checking and digging up right. as well. And so they, uh, the political pressures meant the city uh, abandoned the model for a time. Its success rate hugely dropped. It cost a fortune in wasted effort. Um, and in the end, they reverted back to that original data set. And I think that they, you know, what, some of the power in, in the data, you know, it, is that it can call out some of these poor political decisions ultimately. And, and that, that's, you know, it's incumbent on all of us to, to use data in an effective way to kind of hold people to account that might otherwise prefer those data sets not be, you know, yeah. Uh, out in the public domain or something. And I think that Flint, Michigan example is actually a good, shall we say, shall we call it upgrade from the one that gets classically used in schools to show these how these things to be very powerful. Of course, is John Snow's uh, cholera map. Of course, so how simple, how just putting the, you know data points on a map. And think I think this problem is due to this 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 pump in this street in London, and then to look at that and think, okay, this one in Flint, Michigan, you've got all these other. Kind of aspects and issues. Yeah, and, and, and actually, the, the thing about snow um, is that that is a, a it's a bit. There's a bit of mythology around that map. So he actually had his theory. He knew um, that cholera was a waterborne disease, um, and uh, he did a huge amount of data collection, contact tracing. You know, a phrase that we hear a lot now. You know, mm. he established how someone in Hampstead may have died from cholera um, because actually it turns out this, this lady was living in Soho. She so liked the water that she actually got people to bring her the water <laughs> every day from the pump in Soho. And uh, that ultimately is what killed her and, and made her knee seal and, 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 and Snow connected those dots. Um, and so the map was actually... Uh, a, a further kind of elaboration or illustration that, that said, you know, unequivocally, we've got more people dying around this pump. Um, and, you know, it's a further example. But, you know, at the time he was, it was not until after he died that people acknowledged he was right. And even up until the 1910s and 1920s, there were some parts of Europe that did not endorse the kind of waterborne view of, of cholera because it held water companies to account and it cost money to 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 upgrade the water supplies and so again that you know there's some really interesting examples where cities kind of held out against 
the view because they knew that it would cost them too much money to upgrade their water. And how interesting that one of the issues that's being talked about today, of course, is the release of sewage, you know, in, by water companies into, into our rivers and oceans and, and how one of the, one of the, there's a lot of citizen pressure going push back on that, especially on social media, you know, utilizing these maps and showing how all of a sudden we're now having these, these red flags come up to say, well, this was a, this was a beach or an area or a river or, or, or something or a water outlet that was safe to bathe in. It actually was designated as, as you know, you could bathe in it. And now because of these, this yeah. data that is available. And that's another great example of like the map I think the map has driven the story. What I think broke that story and made it kind of a national scandal was the map that showed, I mean, I'm not sure who created it, but I definitely saw a lot of a, a map that was not a particularly elaborate one, but it just showed where the sewage discharges were and how many had happened at any given moment. And, and, and again, it kind of shocked people into thinking, you know, it visualized for them a national problem that needed national action, right, um, exactly. and so that again is a, a you know a really nice example of um, the power of maps, you know, to make a difference. Mm. I think. So let's stick with pollution then, because one of the maps in your book is is uh, called Inexhaustive Detail, which deals with air pollution, um, and this is and shocking. Well, it, we we know that this has been in the news quite a fair bit as well, and. You know, the shocking statistic that you mentioned in your book, which is uh, 8.9 million people in 2015 were killed by air pollution and 790,000 in Europe alone in that year. That's just a staggering, a staggering number. Um, and when I look at this for a geographical eye, um, I remember teaching when we talk about um, economic development and stuff like that, we used to I used to have fun with the with the children about the, the Europe's hot banana, because of the the shape of the way that the industrial revolution kind of went from from southern England and then kind of spread its way through. And of course, it, the term hot to make it was ec an economic core. There was a lot of activity going from there. And when I looked at this map, I'm um, showing where the air quality, the poor air quality was. It does quite fit that kind of hot banana shape and of course and then there's the, the, the redistribution according to the weather conditions and, and everything like that. So that was really, really, um, really interesting. And then of course you've got these plumes of air pollution emanating from areas of the Middle East with, from the oil rich nations as, as well. So I really want to kind of think to yourself about why you thought this was a, you know, it's, this is almost, almost more of a, 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 class, a classic kind of style map compared to the other things that you include in the book. Really is, here is the, here is the pollution that has taken place, the, the, the concentrations of this pollution of nitrous, nitrogen dioxide concentrations, and here's where it is mapped over this time. So why did you decide to include this one, which, which is probably more closer to the classic kind of things we might show in a geography classroom? Uh, it's, good. it's a good question. I think for me, it's one of the best examples of how data collection has changed uh, in in a relatively short period of time. So, if you imagine, you know, the way that we might have collected pollution data, say, I don't know, a decade or certainly two decades ago, is um, through things like weather balloons, you know, putting up, or you know, you can do street level um, pollution measurements and things like that. And in those cases, it was always specific locations, right? So, so you would have to collect some kind of specific readings around and then 
um, you might have to use a computer model or something else like that to try and guess what the pollution levels are like between the known locations. And there'll be some parts of the world that you just don't measure. You've just got no idea. Um, whereas um, thanks to um, this uh, satellite, which is called Sentinel-5, it's part of the European uh, Space Agency's Copernicus program, uh, this thing goes overhead pretty much every day for every part of the planet and it can uh, get some sense of what nitrogen dioxide levels are, the ozone levels and various other carbon monoxide, various other measurements. And it can do it for a whole area, um, assuming there's not too much cloud and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And it, it, as it creates this kind of uh, uh, impartial in the sense that it's got, you know, the sensor is just telling us what's there, but quite powerful image of where the worst pollution is at any given moment and how that pollution changes over time and where it's emanating from and so on. So yeah, you know, pick out the oil rich nations, parts that, um, Lebanon, Lebanon is pretty, one of the worst because uh, it can, it's still, um, its power stations are incredibly unclean. Um, and then we have this, you know, kind of, as you say, arc of pollution that's coming from like the Rhine Valley and the channel and, shipping in the channel and flights and so on, sitting over, you know, uh, the, the British Isles um, during hot weather. Um, but it also outs some other, you know, uh, big polluters like uh, the cruise ship industry around Marseille. You know, Marseille comes up with a big orange flash on it, and it often is, and that's because, you know, cruise ships are some of the worst polluting things on the planet, and you can see the impact it's having just in that particular area. So having, um, you know, this image change over time, uh, people can look it up and see different versions of the maps and make decisions about, you know, what needs to be done to reduce the pollution. I think it was just a nice example, as you say, it's a traditional looking map, but actually it's created from very high tech data. Mm. And this reminds me actually of a, of a project that, um... I was made aware of when I worked with scientists in Boulder, Colorado, so who worked for NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and they were working on a project called the, Car the Carbon Tracker. And what the Carbon Tracker was doing is, was very, very similar to this, is that because it's just, as you said, impartial data, it was purely and simple setting up a, sens a sensor network based on all these kind of things, weather balloons, aircraft sampling techniques, um, air core systems, which is a really unique way of of taking effectively the same thing as an ice core, but for air through, a, through the way a weather balloon descends, satellite imagery, in order to track really, really accurately sources of pollution and sources of carbon dioxide in particular. And, and this is a way that they're just generating, of course, because they're, they're a state-sponsored entity, they're a, the US government body, just a simple way of saying, this is where it's coming from. Now, you policymakers, what are you going to do about it? And that kind of gives me the kind of sense about how powerful these simple kind of tracking things, all these multiple technologies come into play with this. And as you said, a way of, of, of positive use of mapping and how to try and maybe try and readdress the, the balance of power. Yeah, because you can hold, I mean, it, 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 you can hold governments to account and you can actually say, you know, whatever. France can say to Germany, well, look, you know, we can see there's all this pollution your industry's creating, it's blowing over to us, you know, you're going to do something about it, you know, and, and, and things like that. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, 
hopefully will we'll provide a, a, just more intelligence to kind of how we deal with some of these um, challenges around pollution and global climate change and so on. And there is precedence because, um, you know, going back into, you know, before we had things like Sentinel-5, of course, we had um, the problems that the, of the United Kingdom's Industrial Revolution was uh, causing to the Scandinavian nations with, with acid rain. And when I was learning geography at GCSE back in the, uh, in the 90s, that was the main, one of the main environmental issues that we were talking about was acid rain and sulfur dioxide yeah. causing sulfur and destroying these forests over in Scandinavia because of course the prevailing wind coming yeah. from, from the Southwest. And, and that was an issue that was, was sorted, be, you know, because they had the data a little bit, you know, not as, as technologically advanced as it is today, but it just goes to show how powerful it is. So we're having this chat of course, James, during, uh, well, COP26 is coming to an end right now. We're, we're uh, towards the end of it now as we're recording. Um, and a lot of my work has been about climate anxiety and climate agency and working with schools to try and help them manage that and use climate change as a safeguarding issue. And, and I, I will strongly recommend, you know, your book as a curriculum resource, as a curriculum artifact, 100%. But the question I do have to ask you, though, is that, of course, in, in this age of of climate anxiety and something we've really, really got to be very aware of. Do you feel there's anything maybe, any parts of your book or the book itself may inadvertently feed in to this anxiety or on the flip side, where it could give us a bit of hope and change some of this anxiety into agency? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it's something that I reflect on a lot. And actually, I think back to my own um, geography education. So I left school uh, in 2005, um, went and did a geography degree, um, it's 2008 and, you know, that was over a decade ago. And you know, I think back to some of the stuff I was learning at school, you know, that was maybe 15 years ago or more. And at the time I remember, you know, as a, as a student, I remember being terrified myself, you know, at like reading the statistics in 10 years time this glacier is going to go. I remember the other day, actually, I was having a clear out and I found um, all the preparation notes I put together for um, university interviews. And, you know, and I had printouts of like um, BBC news stories of, you know, glacial retreat and the impacts of climate change. And, I, and, and it really hit me because I thought, well, that, that was all the stuff that's written there said ten year, in 10 years time or in 15 years time and and it's all coming to pass you know and even if you look at old atlases you know in the early 90s this stuff was in there and geography textbooks and uh, you know in a sense we were some of the first people to be taught about climate change in geography in a really serious way i think and that's informed my work and my interests and then I think now you know um, kids at school are, are, are in a sense living through some of these things in a way that we haven't previously done and that is terrifying actually and you can understand why there's anger and youth climate movements and so on um, and so I don't want to facilitate a feeling of despair. I don't want people to think and kids to think, oh, this is it now, you know. Um, but I do want kids to understand that we have more data available to us, more capability of 
tracking the changes as they happen, understanding what may happen. You know, we've got, you know, the maps of forest fires, for example, mm. or, or, you know, in, in the book, both show areas that have long had them, but also areas that are developing them and, and, and the impacts of that. You know, we've got data that's showing, yeah, whatever, the intense, intensity of uh, sea level rise in different parts of the ocean, you know, all those kinds of things we can create global level views of now in unprecedented detail. And the, the, the trick is, is not to say, well, I'm just going to be a, be a kind of spectator here. I mean, the, the last image in the book is of what was the world's largest iceberg coming off the Antarctic Peninsula and sort of spiralling into the, to South Georgia. And that was there because I felt like, a, you know, you could either be a spectator, you could say, I'm watching this stuff happen and I'm going to do nothing, or I'm going to do something about it. And I think that that's the most important feature here. It's not uh, a story of despair, but it is a story of saying, well, we now know what's going on. We've got more data available to us to show what's going on. And you, the politicians, you, the decision makers, need to do something about it. And I think we have seen that. I think in COP26, mm. there is a lot more pressure now. I think politicians are feeling it, that needs something needs to change. And crucially, we can monitor how the pledges are going, you know, we talked about the nitrogen dioxide, you know, talk about nitrogen dioxide map in, in the book. You know, you can now monitor that and say, well, these countries have pledged to do this thing. Well, have they really, you know, are they really doing it? And I think that that, you know, is empowering. And so I think, you know, this isn't about politicizing our kids. This isn't about scaring them about the future. But this is about presenting them with the information they're going to need to navigate an uncertain world. And actually, if we can equip them with the tools and the skills and the maps and everything that help explain that information or help them to process it, then they can then use it to make sure that change happens. And I think that is the crucial that is the crucial message here, you know. We talk about maps having lots of power, but that power only comes from people acting on them. And so we have to combine the messaging around change and uncertainty and nervousness about the future. We must combine that messaging with um, ways to act, you know, and how we can make those changes to try and prevent this future from, from happening. Yeah. And the agency is the key word here. Uh, I've had a lot of debate with fellow educators about what word should we be using to change climate agency to action or, or climate, uh, climate anxiety to action or climate um, anxiety to agency. And a lot of us are coming around to this idea that agency is actually a much more um, nurturing word because action is like, it gives you that kind of feeling that, well, if you're not doing something, if you're not acting, then you're part of the problem. Whereas agency is like, no, we're giving you the power to do what you feel you can do. 
you know, what are you capable of doing? And actually, it's interesting what you said about the, the politicians at COP26. One of, them, one of the, our colleagues who took a, a bunch of students up to COP26 for the UK Youth Sustainability Schools Network um, said that they actually felt the politicians may have felt a bit nervous, a little bit fearful of the young people there because they realised that, oh, we've, you know, we are letting these young people down. And this, and because, and these amazing youngsters who were taken up to COP26, why are they so passionate? Why are they feel that they can provoke change? Why are they holding politicians and people of power to account? It's because they have the information behind them and they understand what it means. And that is what's the crucial element as us as educators. I don't see us as much as teachers and educators, I see us as allies of young people. Because, you know, we can, that, that blame game has probably been, been gone. And I totally agree with you what you say about education in geography. When I was, a, when I was um, in the 90s doing my GC, it was like, you know, global warming could be this issue, this is what could. It was always could, 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 may, may, may. And then when I started teaching, it was, this is what is likely to happen with the elements of uncertainty. And then as I was teaching, it went from likelihood to, um, to will or, you know, and then now it is. And that language has developed so quickly. Yeah, so. and I think I think it I think the the power of actually geography and geography education as well is it it enables you to connect the dots in a way that you know some other disciplines don't. And, and you know that one of my great heroes is um, Humboldt and the work that he did with maps and atlases. His collaborators, a chap named Berghaus, mm. he he made these connections, and I think that you know we've done a really good job of educating kids about the fact that you know some countries are more empowered to act than others you know and you may well say you know one country is going to cut its emissions but there's no point in doing that if they're effectively exporting them to another country right. who's having to make the products that that country is now importing or mm. you know the importance of land ownership in better ma land management and understanding all these connections and and, and and stuff like that and i think that you know as you said the, the idea that, that people are better informed i think is 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 crucial because actually it calls the bluff of politicians who say it's not possible to do this or or, or i don't want to do that or even it, it gives motivation or impetus to making decisions about you know, I'm someone who's empowered to, I don't know, eat less meat or, you know, um, cycle rather than drive, you know, all those kinds of decisions. I'm not taking them in the context of my own very specific circumstances. I'm actually able to kind of extrapolate that out to right. the global impacts of everyone making a small change. And I think that that is mm. really important and um you know, it's it's easy to con you know it's easy to say, well, we're just going to fill our kids with despair if we do this. You're not doing, you know, you kind of you're not teaching it right or messaging it correctly. If that is the outcome, the outcome is we have a potentially quite scary and uncertain future, but you know we can take some firm action and decisions to help alleviate that. And here's the data that can inform those decisions, and this is how we can facilitate change. Absolutely, and I'm going to give someone a shout out here, someone I admire greatly, a young person called uh, Clover Hogan, um, who's a, a young climate activist who 
really does give this this really she really installs inspiration in in other young people and she actually was was fortunate enough to have a platform in the blue zone of of, of cop 26 and really did call out the people in power and she does this amazing job of making young people feel it's okay to be anxious use that anxiety to make the changes that you is make is comfortable for you that you can do but it also has this synergetic way of holding others to account. So, and she says encouraging conversation is so important. That is the first step to anything. And this is what, you know, yeah. data like this yeah. really helps is to go with those conversations. And so she says, when, when you're looking at these kind of aspects, well, like you said about products and where they come from and outsourcing emissions to places, you know, like, like China, for example. And she says, well, if you have those conversations with your family, with your friends, oh, well, you, you, okay, fine, you want this this thing. Have you talked about where you could perhaps source a refurbished one or does it have to come from this location? Where's your mum and dad banking with? Who are they, you know, How? what's their pension coming from? Is it invested in these kind of things? And then as soon as you put that conversation out there to everybody else, they have a great impact Yeah. yeah as well. Yeah. And they kind of shift the responsibility back onto those creating the biggest problems. Yeah, I agree. And, and so I think, yeah, we need to... Let's say these aren't. This isn't about despair. This is about Absolutely. kind of arming ourselves with the information we need to create the change we need. You must have had these kind of questions so many times before. But what would you like to see educators like myself um, be doing in the classroom? You know, when we're working with, you know, not just our secondary school students, but maybe even into you know the primary and early years. Mm. What would you like to see as someone who works in this on the academic front? That's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, in, in the last um, decade or so since I started teaching undergraduates, you know, I've seen, I have seen a real shift, uh, a real positive shift um, with our kind of first years coming in. They want to, they, they have a better understanding of data, actually. They, they're, they're interested in mapping and data and how that can um, be used in geography. Um, they have, um, you know, strong awareness and about kind of what's happening around the world and how you know things should change and how we might go about changing so actually there's a, there is a much stronger kind of um i wouldn't say campaigning edge to them but i think it, it it's no longer some you know they're, they're much more active in in how their knowledge can then facilitate positive change which i think is a, is a good thing um and I think they have a real appetite for, you know, making maps and, and data visualizations because there's so much more of them now in the media. You know, COVID nineteen. You know, graphs are everywhere. You know, explaining the the outbreak and stuff. So, you know, that's all really positive. Um, I think that uh, we can do more in um, teaching kids about data, the pros and the cons. You know. Um, the challenges, the potentials of certain data sets, because again, I think those <clears throat> arguments can be somewhat one-sided at times. You often hear about all the the negative mm. side effects of, of of data collection around ethics and privacy and that kind of thing. Um, less about how that can be used in, in more positive ways. And then, in the, in the same way, I think um, particularly, you know, um, teachers who have, were geography undergraduates not so long ago or a bit longer ago went through a geography curriculum at the undergraduate level that did not do a lot of mapping and data visualizing. Um, it was 
you know, in the UK at least, you know, the, the, the discipline is much more critical. So it's about, um, you know, the, the, the dangers of the map or the, the mm. you know, the negativities associated with the map and, uh, and, and I can corroborate that. I, I had to do a specific module on mapping. You yeah. know, it wasn't en endemic or integrated throughout the rest of my, my degree. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you don't have that module, you can't do it. So I can, I, I can understand how for some people in the classroom, it's, it's actually quite hard to think, well, how am I going to access this or create resources from it and so on. Um, and so, so I think um, there's, there's a lot out there and I'm very committed to, to sharing examples and, th and things. And, and, I, and I would say, you know, start with a map that you've seen, you know, on the BBC or the Guardian or Financial Times, they all do really great maps outputs now. And, and get the kids thinking about, you know, how representative is, is the data that I'm using or that they've used here? Are there people missing from this map that should be represented? You know, asking about, you know, is the data current? You know, what, what, what perspectives might we be showing here? Could it be shown another way? You know, all those sorts of questions about the kind of the critical engagement stuff, I think are really important um, because then they come into university and you know, people like me would love to teach them more about, you know, the software, the skills, the mm. tools to create amazing maps, but then also uh, the dangers of, of mapping, but also how you can contextualize that knowledge in a way that is actually useful. And I think that's one of the real powers of, you know, geography and geographical thinking is that you're able to contextualize yeah. what you've done. And that and that's something that is actually quite, I, th I would say, quite unique to, to geographers and, and, and something I would definitely, um, you know, I wouldn't want to lose. You know, I think it's really important. Sure. Yeah. And the the geography teacher community in the United Kingdom in particular is, is amazing. They're so supportive. There's a great collaboration going on. You know, um, there, there are so many examples of teachers and educators doing amazing things with their students and they share them so freely as well. So they're out there to be found. And, and you know, you've got subject associations like the Geographical Association, Royal Geographical Society and all those kind of things who, who facilitate all of this collaboration. And so it's all out there. And the other thing that I would also say to, to teachers as being one myself is that of course there's that constant pressure and dread about I've got to get through content I've got to get through the curriculum I've got to make sure that my my kids are ready for that exam at the end of year 11 year, year 13 or whatever but there are ways of integrating this into the way that you want to portray your your content the way that you want to deliver your curriculum and it's just finding out way and, and picking each other's brains about okay how can we have our cake and eat because you can because you can use these as as we've already mentioned as curriculum stimuli as curriculum artifacts as stimuli as a way to teach the content that you need to do and of course very very importantly help develop our students critical thinking skills as well and and even when i i've got a very very um um lovely memory of some students doing their their old controlled assessment and that's going to make some people watching a bit shivering when we used to do controlled assessments at gcse uh, coursework um using uh, a new gis software to produce amazing maps of the data that they collected on their field work for example and this is coming from you know 15 16 year olds so they 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 can do it they're up for it they're up for the challenge so let's yeah, and I think I think it. I think you mentioned that the software. I mean, the, the the tools have massively changed. Indeed. 
and they're much e there's a lot more web-based tools now which make a huge difference so you're not having to install any complicated software to get access to maps um, and it doesn't have to be hard or complicated or even thinking about specific technical skills or anything like that what's really important i think is the conversations and the as you say the critical thinking around being able to look at a map or a data set and to say you know what this is it's got some good stuff about it there's some bad stuff about it in an ideal world it would be a bit more like this but it's all we have it's the best we have so now we're going to go and move forward as best we can with the data to make some interesting decisions or, or observations based on it. And what does the data not show us as well as what it does show exactly, us? Exactly, well? exactly. Absolutely. Is there is there anything else you'd like to to add from a from a, a geography educator's point of view, or no. to, to teachers who are listening? Any final words of advice? Perhaps? No, no. I'm just, well. I'm just um, I'm very enthusiastic about geography and 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 the label geography. And one of the one of the things I mean you know, about um, academic geographers is they often drop that label fairly, you know, you become a glaciologist or a geomorphologist, <laughs> or in my case, you know, I've, my job title is geographic information and cartography. And, you know, I'm not a professor of geography, you know, and um, I think taking ownership of that word, mm. moving it away from kind of, you know, uh, caricatures of sort of old men in tweed jackets with leather arm patches, that kind of thing. And, 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 um, being able to say take ownership of it and actually say this is actually what geographers can bring to the world particularly around big challenges around the climate crisis and things like that um, I think is I think is important and, and I feel that it's something that you know that it, it is happening actually I think there's more going on the, the Geographic Association and Royal Geographical Society I think have been really good at pushing that word in in education and so you know, it's it's about keeping it there, both in terms of the timetable, geography, curriculum content, but then embedding that geographical thinking across other subjects too. Absolutely. Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating, and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. Okay, welcome back, everybody. I'm, I hope you uh, enjoyed listening to that as much as I know I definitely enjoyed that conversation um, back down there in the, in London in November. Um, so, some uh, there are plenty and plenty of educators and geography teachers listening, James. And uh, I think this would be a good opportunity to say that there are some educational resources that have been made to go with the book, um, uh, which is what I helped you out with. And Catherine Owen, who's been a, a guest in this podcast back in season one, and Paul Turner. So, yeah, um, tell us a little bit more about, um, about the complimentary kind of website and the educational resources that go with and then, and then where they can find that. Yeah, so um, the education materials we can see um, if you go to atlasoftheinvisible.com, there's a kind of a four educators button at the top there, and then that will take you actually to my website, which has uh, these materials on. Um, and I guess we can post the link uh, direct to them as well. And I really wanted to um, work with you know people like you, Kit, to to come up with educational materials that support the book because 
Um, you know, over the years, I've created or co-created, um, you know, websites like one of the websites we worked on is called Data Shine, which many of you probably have used and been familiar with. Um, and previous book like London, the Information Capital was the first one I did with Oliver. We know that they were and are used quite widely in schools. Um, and, uh, you know, there are ways to get into maps and map making. But, you know, I'm, I'm someone that doesn't have a huge amount of experience in knowing what it would be useful for teachers and educators, particularly at secondary and even primary level. And um, I often get requests from teachers to help out with some materials or give talks at schools and that kind of thing. And I think it's incredibly important that we uh, invest in, you know, uh, these resources, because I think, you know, getting kids into mapping data, uh, visualization is is increasingly uh, uh, important for what they might do at university, particularly if they come and do geography. So I was keen that I get some like proper help in, in doing it and, and putting together a kind of a big suite of resources that will sit alongside the book. So you don't have to have a copy of the book necessarily completely in front of you in order to, to use them. Um, and they are kind of open access and, and free to use. But, um, you know, uh, it's good to kind of be able to follow along uh, with the book as well. So um, I do hope they're they're useful, and they have had quite a lot of. I think we've had about two thousand visits to the resource wow. page. I just checked. So um, hopefully um, people are making good use of them. That's really that's that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Thanks for telling me about that because I think that's the first time you give me the statistics of how people look at it. Um, no, that's great. And also, it's you know, regardless of whether students go to university or not, you know, it's just just to give them that enrichment experience you know and that spatial awareness and that different way of looking at the world and getting them thinking differently and i think that's so so important you know that kind of adds to that critical thinking kind of um thing right so before we uh, close off then um do you have any do you have a, a couple of quick facts about you personally like that you'd like to share i think this is the the worst <laughs> question to ask <laughs> particularly academics who spend their life you know see their life as their work or their work as their life um i uh I don't know. I'm a proud owner of a rescue dog named Howard, who's a, a lurcher, who's a bit of a handful. Um, but, Hello to uh, Howard. <laughs> yeah, that process of uh, we got we got him in uh, October 2019, so actually it's before before the pandemic hit. But I think um, came to very much appreciate the sort of extra company, but the routine you get of you know taking a dog for a walk every day is a great bit of mindfulness in a sense you know it gets you out in the morning and uh, so I, I definitely um you know that's an important part of my life and it makes me a bit more uh make, makes me you know make sure that I get out and, and see places and we're lucky here we live um uh, near the um what's called Walthamstow marshes and stuff so actually okay. even though we live in London we have access to some really nice green space which is incredibly important I think yeah, I know Walthamstow pretty well. I mean, I'm originally from Harlow in Essex, so my my mum's from Epping, so not too far away from that part of London. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Epping Forest is uh, quite a few times down there. Right then, okay, so the last thing then is we are all geographers where we link all of our podcast guests together. And you mentioned uh, at, uh, earlier on in the episode about um, being a bit of a hipster. And I'm not sure whether this, this will help with this word that uh, Daryl Sinclair came up with last episode, which is the word dope. 
<laughs> so dope right. for from his point of view. I mean, he said because he he loves breakdance, he does breakdancing and things like that. So he he uses the word dope as that cultural term to mean you know that's just amazing, that's that's brilliant. You nailed it, kind of thing. So he he says you can try and approach the word dope in that manner. And I said, well, it's up to the interpretation of the receiver. So the the trick is, James, you've got thirty seconds to link the word dope geographically in any way, shape, or form, and you could take. Daryl's context, or you can take a different context. That's entirely up to you. Well, um, I don't know that this is exactly a word that I heard being used, but I definitely got that kind of sort of dope reaction from my uh, undergraduate class the other week, a couple of weeks ago. I went into the uh, map library in our department. We're very fortunate that we only, one of the few departments left that have a big map room. And so I actually got out, you know, a table full of maps, paper maps. And um, I was really taken by how engaged and excited the students were for seeing uh, paper maps. I mean, they were taking pictures of them and I think posting stuff online of, of these paper maps, but many hadn't seen them before. And actually many were uh, very surprised that they weren't made with computers. I mean, I think the latest mm. map I showed was like in 1950s and stuff. They didn't believe me that these things were done by hand, but <laughs> it was a an incredibly immersive experience for them. And and I did feel, you know, as I guess, you know, uh, dope is a word that I probably wouldn't feel comfortable using um, because I feel like I feel like a bit of an old man trying to sound like a <laughs> a, 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 a cool person, but. Um, uh i i felt like a little bit of an old man when i was showing these these maps to the the students because i mean i i sort of was at the transition point where you know the paper maps were still really important i think for understanding things you know um even though we had gis and that kind of stuff it was never uh quite you know you'd still get a big impact on a big paper map but now we don't use them so much. And so it was almost a novelty, but I was really uh, enthused by the students' reaction. They all want to come back and uh, look at the map library again. So I'm going to try and put that in. But I definitely, um, yeah, you know, there's 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 hope still for paper maps. And yes. I think we should still try and use them a bit, uh, particularly when we're teaching, because they are so tactile and tangible. Well, I'll let you. I'll let you. I let you go on beyond the, the thirty seconds of the challenge, just because this, that was a great story. Um, and also, I, 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 I totally get you. Well, first of all, we're about the same age, so enough of this old person. Nonsense. Well, yes, no, and no. Uh, and the second thing is, yeah, when it when when Dar- when someone like Daryl, you know, comes up with the word "dope" for for us white people, it's like I kind of feel like that offspring song you know we're just trying to be pretty fly for a white guy you know kind of <laughs> trying to get way trying to invade somebody else's culture way too much where it's almost cringeworthy uh, but thank you daryl for that i know that you did that to kind of see what we would come up with right so now it's your turn then i mean there is a um well i could think of a potentially maybe obvious word you might choose for the next guest but uh, based on the discussions of this podcast episode but um it's entirely up to you james have you got a, a word for our next guest to link to geography so does it have to be a word that has any links to geography or is it just no. any, any random word? No, um, any random no, that, word. That That is interesting. Now, I would say um, the word I would use is maybe the one I was thinking of, and, and this is a sort of a, more of a geography word, but sure. um, uh, I was thinking of something like uh, connectedness or connections. Let's go with connections. Connections. 
Okay, wonderful. Interested to see what connections they can, the next guest can draw connections. Uh, with that word. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, um, my next guest, I believe, is actually a map maker. So quite okay, nice. We'll see how they go. Flo- flows yeah. quite nicely on from this. Well, thank you, James. So uh, last but not least, and we've already given your uh, the Atlas of the Invisible website uh, a plug, but is there any more um, any more shout outs? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned your lovely rescue dog, but you've got any more shout outs and any other kind of promotion to give regards website, social media or anything like that? No, no. I mean, I'm, I could say I'm, I'm on Twitter as uh, at uh, Spatial Analysis. If anyone wants to take that, take a look at that, or my website is uh, jcheshire.com. There's there's other materials and bits and pieces on there that people might be interested in in looking at. So, um, you know, if you're interested um, in anything I've said or whatever, be, please reach out. Uh, my uh, messages are open on on Twitter, so people can reach me that way or find my UCL email address. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you for joining me. And once again, I'll say it's just been an absolute um, pleasure to collaborate with you and work with you. And uh, good luck with all your future projects. I'm very, very excited to see what may be in that mind of yours that may be coming in the future, whether you thought about them yet or not. (laughs) Great. Thanks, Kit. And thanks for all your help with the materials as well. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.